Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is Marlon Kerner former cornerback with the Buffalo Bills, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. Today's special guest is Steve Wright. Steve played for the Dallas Cowboys, the Baltimore, then Indianapolis Colts, and the Los Angeles Raiders. He also had a short stint playing for the Oakland Invaders of the United States Football League, or USFL. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we discuss the Oakland Invaders of the USFL. Now let's get to our interview with Steve Wright. I'd like to welcome Steve Wright to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing excellent, Ken. Thanks for having me on, sir. Well, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. So you just wrote a book titled Aggressively Human, Discovering Humanity in the NFL, Reality TV, and Life. And it's going to be released shortly at the time of this recording. So why did you want to write this book? I had a lot to say. I had a, I've had an interesting life and uh, wanted to share it. I've, uh, it's, it's been a, a wildly joyful ride with uh, a lot of effort, a lot of mentors in my life, um, learned a lot of lessons and if I can pass anything on it's not a you should bo book on, on how to do things it's just how I did it and I think fairly successfully um it was during the pandemic and I'd had all these stories I've been jotting down for a decade and uh decided to pull it together and talk to my wife and I started on the journey took me about eight months and uh, she helped me clean it up, edit it and, and uh, put the, the spices into it and, and glue it all together. And um, kind of one thing led to another. We don't, my life has been not thinking out too far because you've got to take care of right what's in front of you. And so we started jotting it down and it started coming together. We bounced it off some friends and it's, they said it looked like we got something here. And so then found a publisher and he loved it and um, took it under his wing. And um, kind of one thing led to another. And all of a sudden it's going to be released on the 7th of November. And I recorded the audible, just a lot of life lessons that I went through um, growth effort uh, to make the Cowboys one of three free agents out of 120, um, which is a story in itself. Um, I believe in karma, putting out the best you can to everybody without looking for something in return. And I've got some fun, interesting, crazy stories on, on how that came to fruition in my life um, that I just wanted to share as, as an example of, of what it can but you know treating people like humans and being being kind to everybody 
And then the aggressive part of it was, you know, obviously the football thing, but my, my parents were great mentors of mine and Mike Ditka was a great mentor of mine and just wanted to share a lot of the, the inside stories and, and make people laugh and have some fun. And it's, it's not a complicated read and it's, it's not going to win any big awards, I don't think, but I think it'll be a joy ride for anybody that opens it and, and gets through to the end. Now, I know people don't realize the amount of work that goes into a book. I've written a couple myself. So how was the whole process for you? Isn't that something? It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a great journey. Um, and I probably wouldn't have done it if I would have seen a punch list of everything that goes into getting a book on a shelf. I've got so much more respect now for a book sitting on a shelf. It's just a slog they've gone through. Um, I just got through with the Audible and it's a seven and a half hour listen. And I did probably seven or eight days, four to five hours a day recording it, you know, 70,000 words enunciated perfectly, not forgetting an S or an ED and having to start over and back up. And, um, but just the journey of, of recalling my whole life um, was such an awesome journey um, over those eight months, you know, in the shower, I'd remember some story or somebody's name and grab my phone outside and dump it into it and, and then go out and write. Some days I'd sit out in my patio for three hours and write a paragraph and other times I'd write three beautiful pages. Um, and then I'd get together with my wife every night and read to her what I wrote. And she'd just, oh, you got to go back out there and, and work on that, you know? So then the next day and, and they'd click and she'd love it. And you can really feel when it, when it works and when it doesn't. Um, then the whole journey of, we went after an agent and I bet you I reached out to probably 50 different agencies and you just send out the query letter and get you know 50 out and you get two responses that you know we'll think about it and then we just decided to skip the middleman went right to the publisher <clears throat> and hit it right out of the right out of the blocks there with the one of the one publisher out of the first five we sent to and Kohler publishing Kohler books yeah it's uh, it's a journey Ken but uh I could not recommend writing your your memoir it's uh it was it was beautiful i absolutely love it it just feels so good having this legacy left behind i've got a 33 year old son and just uh passing those things pa passing on what made me who i am yeah i mean that's great to be able to record that and leave a legacy so mm -hmm. i know one of the things that you discuss in your book is concussions and, you know, you'd mentioned that concussions weren't really taken seriously enough during your time in pro football. And you brought up one particular incident of a major concussion that you had. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was an uh, interception. Uh, I was on, I play offensive tackle. It was interception at the Coliseum and sprinting downfield to try to tackle the free safety or whoever was carrying the ball. And there was a few linebackers in front of them and they were running up our sidelines right in front of our bench. And 
there was a nice convoy. I couldn't get to him and just dove head first like a bowling ball to the pins and woke up later with my uh, couple of uh, trainers leaning over me, asking me where I was. And my head was fine. I woke up and I was perfectly clear, but I couldn't feel my legs. And these guys were trying to stand me up. And I, for some reason, I just, I really wasn't worried about it. Cause I, you know, I first time I'd ever been knocked out and okay, my legs are asleep, but they stood me up and it took a while for my legs to wake up. I got over the sidelines and um, my head was clear. And um, back then I just, you know, we pulled on a uh, ammonia cap for a little bit and then they put you right back in the game and I was fine and, and haven't had any residual effects from it. Mm. Uh, I was super fortunate. I played for 25 years from 10 years old till I was 35. Um, but that was my only knockout. I saw a couple of stars here and there, but um, I go through all the, the cognitive testing that the NFL uh, Player Association through our benefits provides every five years three-day long um, testing, balance and and drawings and everything else. So I'm just trying to stay on top of it and hoping, hoping for the best. Now, this is something I've asked other NFL players, and I wanted to get your opinion. In your experience in the NFL and the locker rooms, is there room to talk about concussions, mental health, needing to get help, therapy for mental health, things like that, or was it – kind of taboo during your time yeah it, it, it wasn't even taboo it was just it was just you just it wasn't even a, a thought oh yeah steve got knocked out oh, oh, you okay yeah i'm fine cool and you go on to the weight room and do something else it uh it, it wasn't even a topic of conversation now i know you tried to improve or at least come up with designs for equipment used by players. Um, can you tell me about the types of things that you came up with to try to help them out? Yeah, you did read the book. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's just a, I've always, my mind works to how can things be better? Um, I've also got a patented toilet that uh, we can talk about that later, but uh, that came from just seeing how it can, it, it, you can find a better toilet, um, better for your body and everything else. But the equipment wise, um, the more I kept hearing over the last 20 years, all these concussions and with my head still being solid, my brain and my mental capacity and my father dying of Alzheimer's, I must've done something right, what did I do? Well, one thing I always wore the neck roll. Um, so it's not, not going to stop everything, but it's definitely a shock absorber. It's basically like a seatbelt in, in a car. It's going to help you withstand. So when I go to hit somebody or I'm running downfield, I could always cock my head. And I would say I could run through a wall or I could stick my head, you know, really run hard into a cement wall without it hurting or snapping my neck or hurting anything. Because I had this big fat neck roll on. You don't see those anymore. The simple things of, of knee braces. I wore knee braces from, from all through my college practice and games up to all the pro practices and games. Um, I broke probably six knee braces, which would have been my knee or ligament. Um, and just go off to the side and throw a new one on. 
Um, I just feel as, you know, as, as these contracts are getting so big, I'm just absolutely shocked that the player wouldn't do what all he can to keep that money coming in. And he knows that he's weighing 330 pounds and he's in there with 10 other guys, five on each side and bodies are flying around. It. It's a good chance that a knee's going to be taken out. And every game you see a guy getting helped off the field, how they could jeopardize their, their contract. But then when you look at the bigger picture of all that, how could the owner, I'm putting you on the field and I'm going to pay you all this money. I'm going to make sure that you're going to stay as healthy as possible. And knee braces, I guarantee, are not going to slow you down, but you're going to wear those or you're going to be sitting on the bench. It's like sending a, a NASCAR driver out. You don't have to wear your seatbelt. Just drive like hell. Um, the knee brace thing is, uh, is, is a huge pet peeve of mine. Simple things that are there, equipment that, that's there, the neck rolls, um, implementing um cool cooling suits guys are 330 pounds and are out there in august and september and it's bloody hot and these guys are overheating that's where a lot of injuries start well why not have those why not have the they have a cooler now that uh, air conditioner you take your helmet off and you drop it on the back of the the bench when they sit down it's blowing cool air up into it okay so they're thinking along the right lines how about the whole body and be able to come over and just take a plug and plug it in and have your air suit just being cooled off while you're sitting there for a few minutes. And you got to go, just unplug it and go. Um, the shield, the, the eye shield. Um, I was the first one with the Raiders to put on an eye shield. I got poked in the eye and it wasn't bad, but I saw some other team, other players on other teams starting to wear them. So I, I was the first one and everybody made fun of me. And then it turns out my one of my good buddies and a fellow offensive lineman, Don Mosbar, you know, probably, you know, Hall of Fame at some point, but he had many Pro Bowls and stud and everything else, got his eye just a fingernail and his eye drained right there on the field and went blind and it ended his career when just a little plastic over his over his eyes. But guys don't, from my understanding, you know, it has to be on both parts, NFL and NFLPA have got to agree on these things. And it's just, uh, it's, it's it's kind of mind boggling. I, I think it, what, I, what I'm seeing the sport turn to, which I'd like to see it to, is everybody likes to see the big hits. These guys are developed for the big hits. Why not let that happen, but protect them? the receiver go over the go over the middle and be strung out and have a guy put a helmet right into his back but he's protected with you know the, the quarterback isn't the only one that has to wear a flag jacket and they can extend those to for receivers it can be it can be a lot more violent legal game without all the penalties and make it more interesting i have a hard time watching the game now there's you know 11 minutes of of real game over a three hour and 13 minute game. There's 11 minutes of play, you know, and hundreds of 110, 115 commercials a game. It's just, you know, it, it, it's just the, they're, they're putting so many stoppages in. It's, it's, for me, it's getting hard to watch. 
Yeah, I was getting more like baseball where, you know, you're constantly having delays and waiting and slowing it down. So, yeah, I agree with you on that to try to speed things up a little bit, but make sure you do it safely. And bring and bring the game back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just been a lot of weird penalties over the last couple of weeks um, that that slowed the game and, and, and changed the game instead of letting the guys play football. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I could go on and on about it. About it but <laughs> thanks for reading that and checking that out. Yeah, no I got thoughts on that. I know one of the things you do, not only for mental health, but just overall health and wellness, is you started exploring Buddhism. Talk to me about that. Well, the Buddhism kind of developed for me over years. Um, I started my young age in a Presbyterian church with my parents and everybody put their coats and ties on and go listen to the pastor and we go home and there won't be another spoken word of God or any prayer or anything else. And I knew a lot of my neighbors were all going to church and then the guy would come out and scream at us effing kids. And, you know, just the whole thing, it's just, it never really quite felt right to me. Um, but I did. Uh, I married a, a Christian woman my first uh, in my first marriage, and she got me to church. And um, pretty soon, I was running a men's ministry, uh, helping the uh, Marines at Camp Pendleton, and sitting in men's groups on Thursday mornings. And just you know, before the meeting would start, they're talking about, "Did you see that chick?" and um, they're talking about their cars and it, it just the whole thing kind of just it didn't resonate with me and then I was on Survivor and it was I kind of thinking about Buddhism before I trying to find something that really resonated with me and learn how to meditate and kind of spoken a little deeper uh, introspection um, while I was there and then ran into listening to uh, a guy named Sad Guru um, who's uh, really become well-known. He speaks at Harvard and Oxford and um, rides around. He's a real man that you can relate to. I listened to um, the Dalai Lama. I actually went and saw him here in Los Angeles and speaks on a high level and he's far away where Sadhguru is right down in there in trenches. And it's just uh, Buddhism is about me. And it's, and it's, I'm not knocking any other religion or anything else. This is, it, I don't look at this as a religion. It's just myself. I, I can't, if I need something done or if I'm in a bad place in life, I definitely don't want to be on my knees. I want to be, I want to be up and trying to figure it out. And I'm, Buddhism is you're responsible for your life and your death. So um, I'm not looking outside to anything else. It's all about me within me. And that's me personal, and I'm not knocking anything else. Everybody's got their own path in life. This is my path that I've chosen that feels the most comfortable to me. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm Buddhist myself, so um, oh. you're speaking my language. <laughs> nice, yeah. Now, you mentioned Survivor, so we'll uh, talk a little bit about that. So talk to me about how you got cast on that show. And yeah, why did talk, you want to do it? We can, we can talk a little bit about it, but I'm under a contract about like this. I actually had a whole chapter in my book and uh, 
looked back over the contract and it was it's uh, it's quite pricey if you uh, divulge anything within the game mm-hmm. but i was down uh, at fox studio seeing my teammate howie long we go down there once or twice a year and hang out in the green room and go out on the set and watch uh, he and terry bradshaw and everything do their thing and and so i was just hanging out in the uh, um, green room and the head casting director I was playing with her son and chatting with him and she just asked me hey have you ever thought about being on a reality tv show no would you like an opportunity to try and I just whenever a door opens even a crack I charge and I without thinking about it I'm going to figure out along the way I'm going to run into a wall no that didn't work for me so I said sure and so the next thing I knew, uh, past the test that they needed and um, the interviews and seeing I'm a fairly normal guy and ended up in Nicaragua, uh, season 22 in 2010 and uh, had 31 days of misery, but it was a great experience. Um, wouldn't have traded it for anything. Um, lost 32 pounds in 31 days, basically starved. Um, the show is 100% real. There's nothing fake about it. No to everybody, we're not getting fed off, off screen or sleeping in some cozy you know bed or anything else. We're sleeping on bamboo poles and it's miserable and everything you see is real. Um, they called to see if I'd wanna come back and. I hung up the phone so fast there wasn't a chance I was going back. It's it's a smack of reality when the game starts, and all of a sudden you're you know, you're looking for that evening snack, and there's nothing. You're not going to be. It's just like oh man, um, but it was uh, yeah. So then I landed back here too, and you're so foul, dirty um, for my 31 days during the during the show is. Um, you know, this is your toothbrush, you know, and I got back and my, my front tooth was really sore. Um, and I was going to go see my parents. I hadn't talked to them in two months. So I just went to the dentist and he took an x-ray and he came up and he goes, wow. He goes, you have so much bacteria up in there. It kills people in third world countries. We're going to pull that tooth right now. Oh, what? Why? No, it's just a little sore. So out comes my front tooth. I'm 31 pounds lighter. I, I show up at my parents' house missing my front tooth, and I'm 31 pounds lighter. They're just going, "What are you doing?" <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Loved it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I got some really good relationships out of it too. It was. Uh, I'm still friends to this day with two or three of them. But I guess back to the the meditating is where i really you know you would have so many hours and uh one of the guys was a buddhist and we sat and meditated quite a bit and taught me how and now i employ that every morning 10 15 minutes and i'm just setting my intentions for the day and it's just a it's just a a, a great philosophy of life that I, I i believe in and and uh follow completely 
think I know how you're going to answer this question based off of the previous answer, but what was tougher, being an NFL offensive lineman or being on Survivor? What was tougher? Um, Survivor. Survivor. Survivor was tougher. Um, you really didn't do a whole lot, but it's just, there's nothing like starving. And, and you know, it's, I'm a compassionate man, um, but to really understand starving is you know it kind of starts to choke me up just thinking about it um yeah it's it's rough but but the football is you you choose that position you know you you want to be in there and then fighting is what you love to do and pushing people around but um yeah survivor was absolutely miserable miserable miserably uh entertaining and uh Glad I did it, but there's no way in the world I'd ever put myself through that again. And I think that's one of the reasons the show is so successful because we can't talk about it and how tough it is. Let's uh, talk a little more football here. Um, you went to Northern Iowa for college. Why'd you pick that school and were there other schools interested in you? Yeah, Division II schools. Um, yeah, I grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, my father's parents were from Des Moines, Iowa. All my cousins were from Cedar Rapids and Marion and sprinkled around Iowa. Um, I spent my whole childhood going there every Christmas and the summertime, 4th of July, we were always down there blowing off firecrackers and hunting and the, you know, pheasant hunting and so forth. And so I started getting uh, offers from South Dakota, North Dakota state and northern Michigan and eastern Illinois and, and northern Iowa, but really nothing else besides uh, some of that size school. I wasn't even all conference in high school. So I ended up choosing uh, northern Iowa. For one, they had a dome stadium. It was the second dome stadium in the country that seated, I don't know, 17,000 people or something like that. And it was, it turned into a, a big family reunion every home game cousins grandparents my folks would come down and always stay at the same hotel and it was a good uh, business school um i studied uh, marketing um the so just went down there for for four years and uh then that's the other teams the, the nfl started looking at me i i when i went down there i had no idea i was even gonna get a scholarship for college let alone start receiving uh, letters and interest from NFL teams. That started happening about my junior year with the Cowboys pushing the hardest. So I'm guessing after uh, you went undrafted, the Cowboys were one of the teams that definitely reached out to based off of what you said. Were there any other teams reaching out with interest? Yeah, there was the Cleveland Browns, I think Seattle, um, but not, not, not much. Uh, and no matter who it would have been, even my Minnesota Vikings that I grew up with, Dallas was the, you know, America's team. It was all about, I just thought how amazing that the one team I really wanted really pursued me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they set the hook early when I met my junior year, they sent me the calendar of the, of the Cowboy cheerleaders and, Kind of, kind of got a young guy's attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah. So then I, I signed with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, yeah, it's all in the all in the book there. But three of us, and I'm really proud of this. Three out of 120 free agents made it that year. I had five roommates, and they all disappeared. One of them I was just with the other night, but he disappeared. He got traded to the San Francisco 49ers and went on to win four Super Bowls. So he was having have a good time showing me his, all his rings. But yeah, so I went down to Dallas. Going to take a quick break, then get back to our interview with Steve Wright. If you like what you're hearing at the official Football Learning Academy podcast, make sure you check out our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find additional interviews as well as videos on the history of this great sport. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy could help retired players in need. Now let's get back to our interview with Steve Wright. Speaking of the 49ers, I know that uh, you were involved in a very famous game between the Cowboys and 49ers that they now call the catch. Talk to me about the emotions of being on the sidelines during that drive and when that play happened. Yeah, that was, uh, that's a, that's a great story. But you really, you really did your homework. <laughs> I try. It's like, you, it's like you've done this before. <laughs> Once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it looked like we were going to win, uh, the NFC championship game in San Francisco. And I was going to be going to the Super Bowl my rookie year. It was just, amazing that's kind of how my life has been and um so there's about a minute left san francisco basically giving us the game ronnie lott had a couple roughing calls and a few interceptions by montana and so i'm standing on the sidelines and it's i think it was fourth down i should know third or i think it might have been fourth down it was just the last chance that montana and the 49ers had and Montana got rushed out of the pocket right over in front of us on the on the side, over in the sidelines, and threw this ball. And my buddy and I grabbed each other. We're going to the Super Bowl now because the ball was just going to be too high for anybody. And then all of a sudden, you see his fingers come out of nowhere and snatch the ball. And there goes our chance for the Super Bowl. And people poured onto the onto the. Uh, into the stadium, under the under the turf, under the uh, football field, and it, it got really pretty scary. I, I express all this in the book, but the security said, "Run like hell." There's there's the dug there's the uh, locker room, and the door was open, and just ran as fast as I could. I didn't care who was in my way; I was running. It could have been a little old lady or anything because everybody's grabbing. I, you know, as I'm running, they're grabbing my face mask and my head's getting twisted, and people are pulling at me and punching me. And but we all made it into the locker room and lived to uh, talk about the almost Super Bowl of '82. Hmm. Now, in '83, you were traded to the Colts, uh, and then after that season, the Colts moved to Indianapolis. Talk about the experience of being on a franchise that moved cities, especially under the circumstances in which they left Baltimore. Yeah. Um, so I got traded to from America's team to the Baltimore Colts, which was kind of the top to the pretty much the bottom. And then on top of that, uh, coach Frank Cush 
uh, became the coach that first year. And he, I don't think he saw eye to eye with anybody. So the, the team, it was a really tight team and <laughs> the team and the coaches, nobody cared for Frank Cush. So we were all in it together. So we were like a big family together. And, um, it was a great opportunity because I would have probably sat on the bench or not gotten a whole lot of playing time um, staying with Dallas. But when I went to Baltimore, I started the next week uh, at guard. Um, so I got a lot of playing time. My, uh, my skills improved. Um, I think the smartest move was Robert Ursay leaving in the middle of the night. The team that the city didn't like him. Um, we had maybe 25% of the stadium seats filled. Uh, it was, it was, it was just empty in there. They go into a, whatever, 65,000 seat stadium and 20,000 people are there. It was just, uh, you feel like you were playing in some different league. Um, then we go to Indianapolis. And so Robert Ursay goes from just being the, the butt of the town to all of a sudden the hero in Indianapolis and he's paying a dollar a year rent and the place is packed and you know money's just pouring into him so kudos to the to uh, uh, the Ursays Jimmy's running it now and um, but getting to a new city was uh, was just a whole breath of fresh air and then the and they were on still on the lower end of the, the pay scale for the NFL. And that's when the USFL came looking for players and pulling them from all the teams. And that's how I ended up with, uh, I signed with the Oakland Invaders. Kind of a long story, but Oakland Invaders then, we were in the championship game. And then that year the, 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 we lost and the league folded and our head coach, Charlie Sumner, had been the uh, defensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Raiders. And so once a Raider, always a Raider, they brought him back and he became, again, the, the defensive coordinator and brought myself and a couple other guys uh, back down to Los Angeles. And that made the team there and uh, became my home for the next seven years until they moved to Oakland and I retired in 94. Yeah, a couple of things want to unpack with that. Um, you mentioned about being in the USFL. Uh, I know there was one game you were playing against the Denver Gold and you caught a touchdown pass. Um, I'm guessing, you know, playing a little tight end in college probably helped with that, but talk to me about that play. You were good. Um, <laughs> from the Invaders... And actually with the Colts and all my time with the Los Angeles Raiders, I was always moved out to tight end for an extra on third, on third and one or fourth and one and bring in another tackle. And we did the same thing with uh, in Oakland with the Invaders, uh, bringing another tackle and I'm out of tight end and we practice it all the time, all year. And it was just my one opportunity to catch a ball I did catch three balls with the Raiders. We were playing in New England. We were playing in uh, uh, Philadelphia. And I caught three balls in one game. Weren't touchdowns, but boy, that was fun. <laughs> sit out of play. And yeah, so it was just, I had the hands and and uh, 
just wish I, I could have had more of an opportunity doing that. Wish they would have, you know, believed in me more. But Art Shell, you know, felt I, I, I could do it. And I, I succeeded in catching three balls there. Yeah, the touchdown was a great experience. Fun. Hmm. All right. In 87, you get to the Los Angeles Raiders, uh, like you mentioned. And that's when they're having the players strike partway mm -hmm. through the season when that starts. So what was it like crossing the picket line uh, in order to play for what they called the masqueraders instead of the yeah. Raiders? Uh, the stabs. I became yeah. a stab. Well, after going to Dallas and then to Baltimore and then the upheaval and landing in Indianapolis and then going to Oakland and um, really started to find out. I found out early uh, going to Baltimore that you're just a product and you got to take care of yourself. Sure, team, 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 and me are kind of about the same line. I, you know, probably me a little above team, but you know, I got to take care of myself and you know, w whatever I can do for my longevity. But I got to Oakland and walked the picket line with the best of them and we'd do workouts and looking up on the second story of the facility in El Segundo and Al Davis is sitting there just watching us and from, I don't know, 60 guys walking around with, with our signs to eight of us um, over the course of a few weeks. And it's just like, hey, what am I doing? This is this is crazy. I, I'm going to take a break. It's, We'd been striking for three or four weeks or something and out there every day. And so I split and went and saw my parents and um, in Arizona. And then that night we were sitting down to dinner and got a call from uh, Al Davis's right hand man, Al LaCasale. And so they jerked, you know, kind of back and forth negotiating and I ended up coming back the next morning. And it was everything was getting ready to fold. Everybody was going to come back in. You could feel it. Um, I was the first one that morning. I, I don't know if the other guys had gone in or not. I don't, not that I remember, but it just drove through. I've got, you know, the evil eye and the, and the bird, the flipping the middle finger at me for coming through. And that was in the morning. And then the afternoon practice, everybody came through. The whole strike was over and, um, there was a lot of, you know, you know close fights, um, you know, a lot of grumbling in the locker room and on the field, but it was over and I was the only one that had a fully guaranteed contract and my contract had gone up, I don't know, 50% just from that negotiating the night before, knowing it was going to fold, but not planning on you know, all this happening, but I was coming back for more money and it was going to be a hundred percent guarantee, which nobody got at that time. Very few anyway. Um, so I ended up scoring, um, and everybody came in with the same contracts and, um, I got a bigger bonus. And so it worked out for me. And so I, you know, if I would have been there two weeks before or something like that, yeah, I would have felt more like a scab, but I think I was in front of the wave right at the right time. Yeah. Now, I know that you had the opportunity to block for three very special running backs, Tony Dorsett while you were with the Cowboys, and then Marcus Allen and Bo Jackson when you were with the Raiders. Talk to me about each of what made them so special in your opinion. 
the most special one by far, well, it was great and everything, but it was Tony Dorsett, my rookie year. Uh, we were playing in Minneapolis where I grew up and where my father, we always had season tickets and it was freezing cold at the Met, the Met in Minneapolis and snow. And so we went and saw a game, the Dallas Cowboys, they were playing the Cowboys for the NFC championship game. And Drew Pearson caught the Hail Mary. And now fast forward four years, I'm on the kickoff return team for the second uh, half of the game. And our ball carrier fumbled the ball on the half yard line. And so I'm coming off as a young little 21 year old, you know, special team guy. And my offensive line coach grabbed me and pushed me back out there and said, take right guard position. And I mean, I just, I got goosebumps right now thinking about it. And I was kind of like, there was no time to be scared or, you know, nervous or anything our right guard he, his shoe came off and he couldn't he couldn't get it on in time so he came out carrying his shoe and i go in and thank god it was a timeout. um you know it was, it was they were selling beer or something and so i'm standing in the end zone with drew pearson who i watched i was in 10th grade four years earlier and now i'm standing in the huddle with Drew Pearson and there's Tony Dorsett and all these guys. I'm the youngest one by far in the huddle. And my parents and all my buddies are sitting right there in the end of the end zone, like 40 tickets. And everybody's doing this to each other. And I'm kind of not hoping the cameras don't see me. And I've got, <laughs> it's just, I was dying. Um, and ended up, Tony Dorsett went right over the center and and my position over at right guard, we opened up a hole and he was gone for 99 and a half yards, the longest run in NFL history. It could never be broken. And um, that was uh, that was the most uh, exciting play of my NFL career. Mm. Uh, and then just being a, a teammate of Bo Jackson's was just amazing, uh, watching this beast of a man that uh, could just fly with, Every highlight you see of him running, I'm usually right behind him, chasing him. And I'm supposed to be out in front of him. You know, so we always made a joke that we're just chasing him, looking for fumbles <laughs> in case he gets hit. But, uh, you know, guys like he and and uh, Marcus Allen, I, I blocked for Eric Dickerson and Roger Craig and Greg Bell and Curtis Dickey back with the Colts days and... Um, I know I'm forgetting probably so many more, but the uh, Tony Dorsett play was by far the most amazing experience of my NFL career. Mm -hmm. So, What made you decide to hang up the cleats? For one, I was just mentally tired. I was, I was just mentally tired of the same thing, the practice, the, having to carry the macho thing everybody's you know you're putting the macho hat on all the time and you got to have it on outside of football and hey you're, you're right you know I'm 300 pounds and supposed to be this big tough guy um the team was moving to oakland so those two scenarios i was tired the team was moving and three years earlier i found a potential business uh, when I was in Palm Springs, the mist was blowing above the restaurant in 19, 
1981 or 90, something like that. And figured out how to do this system and asked Art Shell if I could try to put one of these above our bench and blow some air, some cool misting air on us. And he thought I was nuts, but wanted to give me a try for the first preseason game because at the Coliseum, it's always, you know, in the 80s, mid 80s, and there's not a breath of air stirring, um, you know, one o'clock game and you're frying. Everybody just flipped. They'd never seen anything like this before, and it kept everybody cool, and he loved it. And so then after the game, uh, there was a couple guys from Hollywood Park uh, where they keep, you know, quite a few hundred horses of the racetrack here in Los Angeles. Um, they wanted systems put up at their place. Now, I'm not doing anything new. I'm just taking a system that's in place and, uh, and finding other applications for it. And so I put it in the stalls there in the off season. And we actually went up there a couple of Tuesdays in our day off and installed some, some of the systems. Um, and it all of a sudden started kind of turning into an interesting business. I wasn't doing any marketing, but people just heard about it. And it had always been out in the desert, out in Palm Springs area. And now a couple of restaurants wanted it above their, above their tables outside. And so it started to kind of turn into something and, so when the team moved, was planning on moving, I just, uh, at the end of the season, I retired and immediately felt this heavy backpack come off of, I, I was I was kind of free. I loved the game. My body was still uh, well off enough to, to play some more. But man, when, once your head starts to go, just being tired, I remember sitting there in the, in the locker room with Howie and and uh, Bob Golick and Bill Pacal and a couple other guys. And we just sit there and just like, you know, the music's changing on, on the stereo that's playing in the locker room. <laughs> it used to be, you know, music from our age. And now it's more rap than everything else. And we're just kind of, we're getting old, man. And so it was, uh, it was a pleasure to retire. It was just hard to say it. But once I said it, man, I felt like a freed animal. Um, and as the team took off for Oakland, I incorporated my company, um, and, uh, went on to cool all kinds of things. And I'll, I'll tell you my, my little quick story of my, the karma thing I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. So probably about three years before I retired, um, a guy was a shoe guy came into the locker room and was offering this new brand of shoe that nobody had ever seen before. And it wasn't anything special. And it had a bad logo and everything else, but everybody's wearing Converse and Nike and Puma and whatever, Adidas. And, and this guy, I don't even remember the name of the brand. Um, but I just felt bummed for the guy because nobody was giving him attention. And he was just kind of a shy young guy trying to get somebody to take his shoe. He's the sales, he's like the one-man sales team for this new shoe company. And I said, give me it, I'll try it, you know. So I wore it in the game. And then uh, didn't think anything else about it. I retired, I got my company going. Two years later then, I'm in uh, Atlanta, uh, giving our sales pitch with my partner, trying to land the, the 96 Summer Olympics. And... I'm going against GE and and uh, uh, 
uh, Raytheon and some other huge companies. And we got back to Los Angeles and about two weeks later, then I get a call saying, congratulations, you've won the contract to cool the 96 Summer Olympics. I'm like, no way, who is this? <laughs> and he goes, you don't remember me, do you? My name is Mike Ariano. And I run all the stadium uh, equipment. I'm in charge of all the facilities. And you don't remember me, but I used to be a shoe salesman. And I came into your locker room and you were the only one that treated me like a human. Everybody else was pushing me out of the way and treating me like dirt. He goes, you were the coolest guy. You took a pair of my shoes and I was a hero in my company. And I got a pair of shoes in an NFL game. And he goes, it's your turn now. Do it, do what you can, do it, you know, make us proud and and uh, I'm here for you. And I was just like, wow. And it was so it's just like treating people nice without the intention of, God, what am I going to get back from it? Just how can I help? And uh, it came back to me 50-fold. Wow. How long did you have that company? Had it from, I incorporated it in 94, I think pretty much right when I got out of football and then uh, sold it to my partner in, I think, 2000. And he still has it. It's still running Cloudburst. Hmm. Um, we did a lot of things with it. Uh, that was the high pressure system that we put on aircraft carriers to cool the decks. Um, the guys up there and um, Burlington Northern out in the, out, you know, putting tracks down in the middle of the desert. And we had them in coal mines. We had them, um, the, the uses were just endless, like plastic extruder plants. Um, and then we had a whole nother line of, of uh, uh, low pressure misting systems that, that we sold in over 1500 Home Depots and Lowe's and Targets and Walmarts. And, uh, and it, that's just a system that you screw into the tap outside and tack up the little hose along the along your patio and it's just run off the house pressure and that, that just was going awesome mm -hmm. and so then I, I got married and that was about the from where i was getting married to our our, our building our facility it was like 100 miles and i was living in home depots and on southwest airlines and i was just over it um so on to something else and sold it to him with a handshake and he's still running it and all is good. And I had to move on to other things and work on being a, a good husband. You had mentioned way back at the beginning of this interview that uh, about the courtesy 180 product that you developed. Talk to me about that product and what kind of sales did you have? Um, I never got involved with the sales. I patented a new toilet. Um, but we traveled through Indonesia and to, I started looking into this, but as you're in Indonesia, it, it, there's a lot of, most of the places there don't have a toilet. It's just a hole in the ground and you hang onto a pole and you squat down. And then the more I looked into it, it uh, is physiologically, it's the best way to open up the system to have a full um, release. And so I thought, shoot. And then you've seen everybody's got one of the little steps, um, the squatty potties. Mm -hmm. Well, I just ended up building one of those into my toilet um, on a ramp. So it's not like you're either here or 
on the floor. It's just, it's a ramp, but it's also turned around. And so it made it easy for, for handicap with a wheelchair, but also too, for just anybody, a wheelchair can slide right up to it. It's ABA compliant. Um, so uh, somebody in a wheelchair can slide right up to it and then slide forward onto the toilet and then slide back. And it's always killed me to watch somebody get out of a wheelchair and they're hanging on to something and you know, trying to turn around. So the, the, also too, just in our travels, we stayed in 50 different uh, Airbnbs and you know the flusher, the toilet paper's back here and everything else. So why not just turn around and, and face the toilet and instead of sitting there with your arms on your knees or something, just lean on the on the top of the toilet and put your stuff there and the and the flushers right there and the toilet paper's right there. And it just kind of simplified everything. And so I patented it and I've sent everything out to 30, probably 30 of the top uh, manufacturers. Haven't heard anything back yet, but I own this for the next 20 years. Don't know a whole lot about patents, but I think it, uh, a big part of it is protecting your patent. And so we'll see if something pops up and then the cease and desist or, and then what my plan is, is to keep hitting them about every six months and asking if they're interested in either buying my patent or interested in leasing it for 10 years. Um, but nobody else can have one. They can't bring them into the States uh, or manufacture one in the United States. And it's a really broad patent. Um, with the the step the squatty potty built into it uh, turned around the seat is instead of a seat being this this wide you know that runs your toilet the seats wider people are getting larger um, more comfort uh, keep from putting a, a little kid's potty on top of it they're not going to fall in because the, the seat's pretty wide you know you don't need a you know a, an area this big in the toilet, you know, just need something, you know, to do your thing. So, mm. yeah, the courtesy 180, and the name is just, uh, you know, they can take it and do whatever they want to with the name, but that's just what I called it. And that's mm. what it's packed as. Okay. Finally, how can kind of wacky, but kind of wacky, but uh, it's just uh, those kind of things go on in my head all the time, just how to make something better. And that's how I, came across the the misting and I've had a few other things as well. I mean, I'm an engineer, so I understand the, you know, looking at a problem and seeing how you can make things better, how you can solve it, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I completely understand how you're yeah. thinking with this. So finally, how can people purchase your book and uh, learn more about you and what you're doing? The best way is at my website, write author dot com w-r-i-g-h-t author.com um got hot links on there to amazon um again i recorded the audible so that should be up this week to join the ebook and the soft and hardcover um if they want something autographed they can go to the website too and just give me their information or let me know i'm always on it let me know and then we'll get back and forth and um yeah aggressively human is that backwards for everybody no that's fine <laughs> but yeah it's uh it's just my memoir and um yeah thank you for the opportunity yeah thanks for being here i really appreciate your time i hope that you enjoyed our interview with steve wright but we're not done for the pro football history nugget of the week 
We focus on the Oakland Invaders of the United States Football League, or the USFL. The history of the Oakland Invaders goes back to 1977, when they played as the Twin Cities Cougars in the California Football League. They even won a few championships. In 1983, the team became the Oakland Invaders as part of the upstart USFL. The city was picked to fill the void left by the NFL's Oakland Raiders moving to Los Angeles. In 1983, the Invaders won a division championship, but lost 37-21 to the Michigan Panthers. Interestingly enough, before the 1985 season, those same Michigan Panthers merged with the Oakland Invaders. This new team made it to the USFL championship game, but lost 28-24 to the Baltimore Stars, who used to be the Philadelphia Stars. Our guest Steve Wright played in that 1985 squad that made it to the USFL championship game. Earlier that season, Steve scored a touchdown on a two-yard pass from Bobby Abar. That's all that we have for this episode. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links at the Football Learning Academy website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll also find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.